0: Thank you for joining us on the MS and Sex Podcast. We affirm that people with multiple sclerosis are radically sexy simply by rejecting the negative messages that we get from our culture. On the podcast and in our classes, we learn how to improve the quality of our lives. And while we're at it, we inspire non-disabled folk too. So get ready. Don't flinch. Last month, I told you that in March, I planned to discuss erectile dysfunction with a focus on cisgendered men. And then I remembered that March is Women's History Month. Uh Uh-oh! So the penis is an unfortunate and awkward choice of topics for this month. So instead, in March, we're going to talk about erectile dysfunction in female-bodied people. We will be talking about the clitoris and related organs instead. I was lucky to reach Dr. Claire Yang. She is a urologist and researcher who frequently works with people with MS when they are referred to her for MS-related sexual dysfunction. I'll be talking with her, um, having a casual interview in a few days and she will answer any questions that I have about how MS damage affects female body genitalia and what the treatment options are. So, if you have female genitals and you have MS or another neurological condition that has caused changes in your experience of sex, email or private message me on Instagram and I will ask her your questions as well. So, besides Dr. Yang's research, which I have been reading, uh, she sent me, she recommended a couple of other papers, and one of them includes a delightful section on the history of the anatomy of the clitoris. So, that is what we're talking about today. Um, At the very end of this episode, also, I'll talk a little bit about some basic anatomy and physiology, just to kind of get you up to speed on some basics before Dr. Yang answers our questions. So, let's get started. The History of the Anatomy of the Clitoris So most of the information today is coming from a paper by Helen O'Connell, Kalavampara Sanjivan, and John Hudson called The Anatomy of the Clitoris. I absolutely love the first line of their paper. The anatomy of the clitoris has not been stable over time, as would be expected. So they go on throughout this paper to point out that the way the clitoris has been studied, not studied, discussed, or denied has been a total reflection of the cultural environment of the times. So I'm going to start out by talking about the who's who of the explorers, pioneers, and conquerors of the clitoris. We're going to begin with Vesalius, who was a writer uh, putting out information in the mid-1500s, around 1564. So his theory was that the female vagina was basically an inverted and thus inferior penis, and that the clitoris was really just not even a thing. There were a couple of other writers at the time, uh, cl- cl- clitoris conquerors of the, of the time, uh, named uh, whose names were Fallopia and Columbo, and they had the gall to acknowledge the existence of a clitoris. And this just irritated Vesalius uh, completely. And this was his response to some of their work. It is unreasonable to blame others for incompetence on the basis of some sport of nature you have observed in some women, and you can hardly ascribe this new and useless part as if it were an organ to healthy women. I think that such a structure appears in hermaphrodites who otherwise have well-formed genitals, as Paul of Agena describes, but I have never once seen in any woman a penis or even the rudiments of a tiny phallus. Now, Magnus was another writer of the Middle Ages. He stressed the similarities between the structure and function of male and female genitals, and he even discussed a psychology of sexual arousal that Aristotle had not brought up. He gave the male and female genitalia equal airtime in his obsessively detailed writings. So, Constantine's treatise barely even mentions the clitoris. And in the mid-1500s, Estine, spelled E-S-T-I-E-N-N-E, Estine was the very first to identify the clitoris based on dissection. But he concluded on his findings that the clitoris was used for urination. So back to Colombo, you remember, is one of the people that Vesalius really uh, lit into. Um, He tried to claim the rediscovery of the clitoris, but it seems really that Fallopea had more data and writings to back that claim up. Apparently there was really quite the academic battle raging between them as they each tried to lay claim to this magnificent discovery. I personally would like to talk to their wives. And we can't talk about the history of the clitoris without talking about the very confused terminology. So the word clitoris was not used in literature until the 17th century. So let's go into a few of the common terms that different people came up with. Columella. 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 Or little pillar. Little pillar. Was used by Hippocrates. Albatra. Albatra. Albatra or verga, which means rod, was used by Avicenna. Greeks used the word nympha. Nympha. nympha when referring to a clitoris so large as to be deemed an illness. This caused problems, as you can imagine, but later nympha came to refer to the labia minora. Tentigo, Tentigo. Tentigo which means tension, was used by Albucasium who was an Arabic medical dude. Magnus used the word virga for both male and female genitals, whereas Columbo, the guy who acknowledged the clitoris's existence, came up with amoris, amoris, which means sweetness of love, sweetness of love, Setis Lumbin libidinous. libidinous which means seat. seat seat of lust seat of lust, of lust. and of course mm-hmm. gadfly of Venus gadfly, gadfly of, Venus. of Venus so the greek word for clitoris is called keltopus which is derived from a very similar word that i cannot even pronounce which means to rub to rub, to rub. To rub. makes sense the authors of the paper that i'm using today also point out that the same root word is sometimes translated into the little hill. The little hill. The little hill. In the 17th century, de Graff wanted to differentiate between the enlarged nympha of the Greeks, and so he always used the word clitoris. And from that point on, this became the more commonly used term. So of course, all of this confusion over the anatomy, physiology, and existence of this structure took medical practice to some very dark places. According to O'Connell et al., it was the vague definition of the term nymphae that launched the medical practice of female genital mutilation. There was a writer, I guess medical person of the time, uh, a French guy named Del Champs, who wrote a popular medical text that included discussion on the anatomy of the nymphae, or clitoris, and its social implications. He penned a chapter on hermaphrodites, which was, of course, followed by a section on nymphotomia. And this was an operation to remove any nymphae that were deemed too large. Right. Who gets to decide what's too large? So this guy stated that the enlarged clitoris was... An unusual feature that occurred in almost all Egyptian women. As well as... Some of ours so that when they find themselves in the company of other women, or their clothes of them while they walk, or their husbands wish to approach them, it erects like a male penis, and indeed they use it to play with other women, as their husbands would do. Thus, the parts are cut off, as is described in Aetius and others. So I'm just going to stop and sit with that for a moment. Sit with the implications of what that means for female-bodied people and what that could mean for uh, trauma that could have been passed down for many, many generations. So clearly, cisgendered men have a long history feeling threatened by the clitoris. Stephen Turton writes of these anxieties in The Lexicographical Lesbian. They talk about the early 18th century medical writer John Quincy, who was gnashing his teeth about women whose clitorises were so uncommonly large that they might be mistaken for penises. Which frequently happens from lascivious titillations and frictions. So, our anxieties about masturbation have deep, long-standing roots, don't they? After launching the practice of lopping off threatening clitorises, the practice continued while the overall subject of the structure was just dropped for about a hundred years until de Graaf brought it up again in the 17th century. He got into some more in-depth dissections, identified the bulbs, and even attributed a function to them, which in his mind, if I read this correctly, was to provide constriction and thus pleasure to the man's penis. Isn't that nice of us? Another influential writer was Cobalt. His detailed drawings and descriptions apparently just blew everyone else's attempts out of the water. He talked for the first time about the vasculature and musculature of the clitoris. And the authors of this paper, I'm quoting, call his text on the clitoris and vagina compelling reading. So it's on my reading list now. Then in the 1800s, Isaac Baker Brown was a physician who wrote a book entitled On the Curability of Certain Forms of Insanity, Epilepsy, Catalepsy, and Hysteria in Females. So Dr. Baker Brown developed a technique, a surgical technique called the clitoridectomy, which is exactly what you would imagine it is. It was the removal of the clitoris. So Brown was actually ostracized by the medical community, but not because of the surgery he was promoting, but because he was promoting it in such a public way when all of the other practitioners had just been quietly carrying the practice out in the shadows. So he actually went to trial, and all the way to the end, he justified his practice, pointing out that men had been doing this since the time of Hippocrates, I mean, this could have, been, could have been an opportunity for him to fess up and maybe put an end to uh, some of the myths, but he did not take this opportunity. Elizabeth Sheenan wrote an essay about Brown, and they astutely point out that there's this irony that although the clitoris was viewed as so inconsequential that when it was removed, it wouldn't even be missed any more than the appendix. Yet, lurking in its tissue, was the greatest threat to female welfare ever known. So before you breathe a sigh of relief over the fact that these insane ideas and practices are ancient history, I'm going to bring you up to the 20th century with John Harvey Kellogg, who suggested placing carbolic acid on the clitoris to prevent masturbation in little girls. So yes, that's the Kellogg that came up with the cornflakes that you put in your cereal bowl every morning. So most clinicians continued to believe that a clitoral orgasm only occurred in infantile women that were stuck in the past and unable to experience, I guess, an authentic orgasm via penetration alone. And they believed this until the mid 1960s, around 1966, when Masters and Johnson began their serious research on sexuality. Then in 1976, Cher Haidt published her report on female sexuality, which thoroughly documented women's experiences of sex and helped dispel many myths about female pleasure. So there are a lot of people out there, a lot of activists and a lot of educators that are out there singing the praises of the real clitoris. And so just do a little bit of research and you'll find some wonderful images and a lot of great information about uh, recent research that is coming out about it. Um, Now, the clitoris isn't the only source of pleasure, and I have an in-depth discussion coming up with Dr. Claire Yang about the vasculature, innervation, and musculature of of genitals in female-bodied people. So we're going to learn more specifics about how MS can affect this aspect of your sexual experience and the available solutions that are out there for us. This is the end of my section in honor of Women's History Month. I know it got kind of heavy, but there's a reason it's important for everyone to recognize this history. When you have any kind of difficulty or concern with your sexuality, or your experience of sex, and you reach out for advice from a friend, or a family member, or a healthcare practitioner, and you sense their discomfort or downright dismissive hostility, you need to be able to identify the source of that unease. Listen to me, as a culture, we have eons of misinformation and trauma to unravel. So their resistance to the idea of you searching for answers to your sexual symptoms is not because your concerns are invalid. As a person, as a person with a chronic illness, as a disabled person, you have a right to an uplifting and joyful sex life. Well, that's my sex educator's pep talk and- You can take that to the bank. to give you some a basics to the best of my ability. If I get anything wrong-headed, as Rachel Maddow often says, hopefully Dr. Yang will correct me. And I'm very excited about this section because I just love anatomy and physiology. The body is just a miracle and when we understand how it works, then we can better understand what's causing it to maybe not work as well. And that gives us the power and the ability to try and bring our body back to a place of health and strength. So this is important information for us to know because it will help us understand how and why some MS nerve damage affects our sexual experiences and responses. Remember, knowledge is power. You probably know that the brain and the body communicate through neurons that are encased in and protected by our spinal column. And these nerves exit the spine at different points or sections called, that are divided up into cervical, thoracic, lumbar and sacral. Female body genitals receive and send both sensory and motor information to and from the brain. So of course, sensory means That's information that tells us, it gives us information about feelings, and the motor information helps our body move the way we want to or the way it needs to. So for the most part, all of this happens via the first two branches of the pudendal nerve, which I will note here must have been named by some male medical writer, because the Latin root of the word pudendal or pudendal means to feel shame. Of course. So this shameful pudendal nerve exits your spinal column. It's sacral spinal segments two through four. And the first branch of this nerve is called the dorsal nerve of the clitoris. And dorsal is an anatomical word that indicates something located at the back portion of the body. And this is a purely sensory nerve, which is absolutely delightful. Now, the second branch of the pudendal nerve is called the perineal nerve, which provides sensory fibers to the labia majora and minora, and a part of the vagina that is closest to the entrance or the exit, if you're looking at it from the baby's perspective. The perineal nerve also provides motor innervation of the pelvic floor, so these muscles contract during arousal or orgasm. Now, the autonomic innervation of female genitals goes through the thoracic and lumbar sections that are like T10 through L2. And you need to know that autonomic just means that this is something that your body does automatically, and you don't have to think about it, and you really don't have any control over it. Then the parasympathetic fibers are found at S2 through 4. That's sacral 2 through 4, and that's your lower back. And parasympathetic nerves are associated with our fight-or-flight response, but in this case, they are the fibers controlling arousal. So other terms that might come up in my discussion with Dr. Yang are afferent and efferent. Afferent nerve fibers take information from the outside world, this information that's stimulating or affecting your body, and then they shoot that information up to your brain, And in Dr. Yang's paper, she points out that how this information is processed is still just quite a mystery. Efferent nerve fibers then take signals from the brain to different parts of the body. Now, important parts of the brain in the sexual response cycle are the anterior hypothalamus and the frontal lobe. The anterior hypothalamus is this section of your brain that's deep inside the middle of your brain, and the frontal lobe, obviously, is just this front part of your brain. Now, we're going to talk about the important events that are happening in your body when you are sexually stimulated. First, you experience vasocongestion in your genitals, and that just means that there's increased blood flow. You'll experience increased vaginal lubrication, which is controlled by certain neurotransmitters. Your vagina will elongate, and your pelvic and genital muscles will tighten. Your labia will engorge. Your uterus will kind of lift up or kind of raise up. And the dangerous clitoris will retract. So here are some important physiological events of orgasm. Your pelvic floor and uterine muscles contract. The striated muscles of the pelvis contract. Uh, the autonomic nerves send efferent, and remember and remember, efferent means brain to body. Autonomic nerves send efferent signals to influence other muscle movements in the genitals. So at any point in this process, whether it's during the stimulation process, the arousal process, or the orgasm process, our delightful fun can be thwarted by nerves that have been damaged by MS. So if your orgasms are not what they used to be, or if you're having trouble reaching orgasm, let's learn a bit about why that might happen and what we can do to address this very common primary sexual effect. So I have lots of questions for Dr. Yang that she will be answering in a couple of days so that I can create part two of the erectile dysfunction of the female body episode. So be sure to turn back, tune back in in a few days. Just keep an eye out. Um, and subscribe. If you don't mind, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast and then you'll be sure to get the notification that this new episode is out. And uh, while you're at it, uh, scroll down and find the review section and offer a review of what you think about the podcast. I am looking forward to our next episode. In any weather, we're stronger Together. together. Gratitude is an important part of a happy life, so I want to offer some love and heartfelt thanks to all my friends and family members who completely embrace me as I am, even though I talk about sexuality at any and all gatherings and then ask them to edit or record narration about clitorises. So thank you to Eric, Doug, Isaac, Nils, and my two favorite Susans anywhere any weather, we're stronger, we're stronger together. Yesterday was yesterday. I got my eye on all the days ahead. Yesterday was yesterday. I got my eye on all the days. Ahead.